Hi everyone and welcome to a new episode of Swisspreneur. Today we're going to have a chat with Herbert Bai, the co-founder of Quaba, who sold his company to Qualcomm. He will talk about how to build a company and sell it successfully, why he decided to sail around the world with his family for four years, and what his new job at Magic Leap means to him. Now let's have a chat with Herbert. Before we get started with the episode, I would like to introduce you to SBB Startup. If you think that your company is a good fit for the Swiss Railways, get in touch with them or learn more about their startup programs at sbbstartup.com. Herbert, it's really great to have you on the show today. Very well, welcome, and thank you for taking the time. In 2006, you started your first company, Coaba, an image recognition platform. And before that, you worked uh, your first job at a corporation, IBM. What made you an entrepreneur? Why did you choose to go down this path? <laughs> well, it's a classical path for ETH entrepreneurs, maybe. So you start with a product without a market, right? Or technology looking for a market. Uh, but actually, it was more like a vision. So we had that vision that you're going to take pictures from your mobile phone and uh, the camera is everywhere, right? So uh, having a, an object recognition algorithm plus a phone with a camera makes something really powerful. Mm -hmm. So we thought of uh, taking the opportunity and uh, looking what's possible with that uh, technology. Awesome. And then during your PhD studies, you started to develop an algorithm about creating a solution around that, right? Yes, exactly. That was during my PhD where I developed a technology called SURF. Uh, which is currently gold standard for a lot of uh, other uh, uh, object recognition or 3D uh, reconstruction algorithms. Uh, so we took the technology and uh, tried to see what we can do with it. The vision was to building a, an object recognition engine, actually also uh, getting uh, information, for example, about the building. So imagine you're traveling, you're standing in front of that amazing building. You don't know what it is. We'd mm -hmm. like to know more about it. You cannot even Google it because you don't know the name, right? right. Exactly. So what's the, the, the closest fit is to just take a picture of it and then know mm -hmm. what it is. So I can imagine, you know, developing the technology with your algorithm is already a, a pretty, you know, difficult um, task to do. But then you actually also started a company out of that with the technology. How did that go? Is Was ETH very supportive there? And what actually made you decide to start a company with the technology that you just developed? Well, again, the decision came from the vision, basically, we had. And there was really at the right time, I guess, to do that. Uh, later, it would have been too late. Earlier, it would have been too early. So we were right at the, at the perfect time. ETH was pretty supportive, yes. So, so that was really, really good. We had a big, I was really great. I'm really grateful that we were at ETH. Mm -hmm. So we had a good support from ETH, also from the ETH uh, transfer office and uh, from the professor, from the group and uh, other student projects and so on. So I'm really, really grateful having had that. Cool. I think that's a strong message. Yeah. In what way has this support shown? What, what did ETH especially do to support your entrepreneurial endeavor? 
So first of all, when uh, financially, financially was pretty hot, so I could work for ETH. Of course, I had to do some other things, also like reviewing papers and and uh, supervising students. But it was good that uh, I could, at least I had some kind of base salary paid. So that was really good. Then, uh, of course, we had uh, a lot of student projects, KTI projects to help uh, uh, adding uh, more innovation to the company and keeping IP for a longer term mm-hmm. in the company. So we did another patent and uh, and and some some other things to to guarantee that the company is going to be innovative for a long term. You also mentioned the importance of timing. So you probably caught the the wave at the right time. A yeah. bit too earlier, it might have been too early, and a bit later, it might have been too late. Yeah. How did you determine that it was the right timing? Because Looking back, that's easy to say, but when you actually are in the middle of making that decision, I can imagine that's not such an easy thing to realize or to do. Yeah, it's really difficult. It's a fight against uh, windmills sometimes. You think, all right, (laughs) so much effort, what for? But at the end, I mean, the right timing, we saw that before there were exits which of of companies which did something similar uh, to a much lower price than ours. And uh, then later there were there were like the window exit window was was really narrow, so there's no more opportunity currently for such a company to sell to any other company. Yeah. So we had just the right moment. You and your co-founder Till, you were both founders with a technical background. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that a setup that you would recommend other companies to start with two technical founders? And also, how did you then make up for the probably the lack of business knowledge in that regard? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a very good question. Uh, so maybe it's good to mention that Till and I, we met at the BCG workshop in Boston. <laughs> so they, they, at the time, they were looking for new hires and they did some recruiting event with ETH. And uh, so I just applied and they, they picked some some uh, like high potentials or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we were both at that same uh, workshop, uh, which was pretty cool. And then uh, one day after, so so that gives you a bit of the of the economic background uh, when you participate there. It's like a, li- a really micro MBA. Sure. But then at some point we met in the corridors of ETH and it was pretty cool. And from the background, I guess Till is... is, is, uh, is uh, I say he's an entrepreneur. He started earlier. He had already his web development company, mm-hmm. which uh, which gave him already some some economic background. And I had my time at uh, at IBM, which also uh, helped me to get some of the of the of the notions about the economics. But I think for hmm, we're gonna probably talk about this later. But um, maybe as 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 a founding team, would be good to have a designer. Mm-hmm. A developer and some some entrepreneurial spirit. Someone who can sell a product if you have to selling sell it. and uh, yeah, a bit multitasking something. Yeah, cool. Yeah, don't know if that makes sense. I think that's a good message and uh, also a good number to strive for with the roles that you just mentioned. Yeah. Then in 2010, you raised three million dollars uh, for your startup from Swiss investors. Mm-hmm. What milestones did you have to achieve in order to get to that funding? Well, we just raised the money. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so it was so easy, you just did it. <laughs> no, as, uh, I don't know. There were no really milestones coupled to it. But there, there was a, a revenue-based milestone. And uh, with a, with so, so I, I don't want to go into the details, but uh, basically, yeah, we, we raised the money and uh, that's it. Right. 
but at what stage was the company? Were you already uh, creating significant revenue or did you have fast growth? Or what sort of metrics were, you know, important that you also could show to investors that this is a, a good investment for them? Mm -hmm. I think we had a couple of great stuff to show. So, for example, we had a partnership with Vivino. Uh, that's uh, the wine app. Um, however, I might I might be wrong because it's a long time ago. <laughs> but uh, I think we had a lot of cool stuff to show. We had a collaboration with Blake uh, where the newspaper was interactive, 20 Minutes was interactive, we're in the media. Uh, so it was a lot of uh, buzz around the company. And of course, there, there was, uh, I mean, the timing was right. They saw that there's more and more mobile cameras coming, uh, that the whole environment changed at that, at that time. And then uh, a couple of years later, after the, the big financing round, uh, you also got in touch with Qualcomm or they got in touch with you uh, about to sell the company. Can you walk us through without naming specific numbers? Because I know you are not allowed to, to share specific numbers, but how did such an exit process uh, look like with such a big company mm -hmm. as Qualcomm? So first of all, we actually I met them uh, on an event in, I think in Germany. And I uh, was talking to them and then we had a, a couple of follow-up calls. So this was kind of important for them because at that time they were uh, evaluating other technologies for image recognition for, for their product, uh, for the project Fuvoria. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was also again about timing. So we went into dialogue and they became, uh, like they started some pilot projects with us uh, in, with the goal to become a customer. If I remember right, it was it took nine months, <laughs> like a baby, <laughs> to get them as a customer until they really signed. Of course, they paid before, but uh, I mean, then then it was it, it went on like this, and uh, then they mentioned uh, or said, the first time they said something about acquisition as well. So for them, it was also pilot something new. They wanted to see first how it worked and how the collaboration worked. And one thing I would to mention would like to mention now. Uh, w one thing they chose us because there were also other competitors. Mm -hmm. One thing they, they, they uh, chose us was because we were pretty responsive. Oh, so yeah. that's something I'm gonna come up on the on the other on the second half uh, again. Um, so yeah, and then then it took another nine months until the. The acquisition was done, but I actually then left Quava because I uh, we we spun off the shortcut from Quava mm -hmm. uh, because Quava focused on technology. Then yeah. they were just use so just uh, focusing on the technology on the cloud based image recognition and uh, would have been distracted focus <laughs> to, yeah. from from any other business. And uh, on on my side, I wasn't into technology for a long time. So I took over the media part, which also took off with the collaboration with uh, Publicitas and we spun it out as a, a separate company. So you were actually not that heavily involved uh, in the exit anymore, or were you still part of, of the negotiations and everything? Uh, yes, I was still a member of the board, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you had like two jobs, uh, pretty time consuming at the same time. Yeah, but I must say Till did the, big, the biggest part uh, during the acquisition, uh, so, so he did the hard work. After you, you got in touch with Qualcomm for winning them as a client, have you ever thought yourself about that they might be a potential buyer of your company? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, uh, it's a big company and if things turn out well, then it's good, but uh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Then uh, towards the end of 2013, you also had a very 
uh, tough year at the end. Uh, your your wife Asma had a stroke, and you also were fully invested in Kuaba and Shortcut Media afterwards. And you were basically left with 50 francs on your bank account uh, after Christmas Eve that night. So how did you deal with these really, really tough times where everything seemed to fall a bit apart while only, you know, the acquisition was probably the light at the end of the tunnel you knew that's coming within the next next months? How did you deal with, with that situation? That must have been really, really difficult, I, I can imagine. Yeah, to be honest, it's tough, but it's not that difficult. I mean, uh, of, of course, I also had an, in, an income, but uh, at that time, <laughs> Christmas was just 50 francs and uh, was <laughs> pretty cool to see. And, but I mean, as, as a young family father, then you have to pay daycare, apartment, sure. etc. So, so it's a lot. And with a startup, uh, with a startup income, it's it's quite difficult to yeah. to actually cope with that. You have all the shares, right, on the sure. side, but it's not liquid <laughs> asset. <laughs> it's not liquid <laughs> asset, yeah. As, yeah. But well, I don't know. It just it was the way it was, right? So we then decided to go anyway, whether there is acquisition or not. And okay. uh, but of course there was the the acquisition with which was in front of us and we we, we you never know before the money's not in bank bank account right yeah. um but after all i th maybe i should say that but uh after the money was on the bank account i was really really sad <laughs> it was like selling your your baby right <laughs> how did that feel to you you mentioned that you felt sad yeah where did that come from? You were sort of emotionally also attached to something that you built up, I, I imagine. Yes, obviously. I mean, uh, naturally, somehow you get attached to it and uh, you, you spend so much time into it. And it's such a long story. And I was looking back at the beginning where it all started and and uh, then finally sold. And yeah, it's sad. it was a sad time. Yeah. Because you probably also enjoyed the ride and had a good time together. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Yeah. After you sold the company, uh, you decided to go sailing on, on, a, on a yacht. And, yeah. Uh, something that you already mentioned to your wife, Asma, when you first dated her, if, if she could imagine doing something like that. What made you go uh, to a sailing trip uh, after selling your company? Others would probably just go on the beach and retire. What was your motivation or attention behind such a trip with two young kids? Well, just to be correct before I answer this, the decision was before we sold. So the decision was made anyway, we're going to go because you only get, uh, I mean, you only live once, right? That's right. I mean, it, it has always been a topic, uh, I think, after you already mentioned on the first date. Yes. Uh, for, so for me, it's in my head since I can think, actually, too. Probably. Since I can remember anything, <laughs> probably also you, because of your family, because your I think your grandfather was also uh, going abroad as a mechanic, yeah. and your mom also lived abroad for uh, a couple of years in the Caribbean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe <laughs> when I looked at the bit nice pictures of the, of the sandy beaches, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, yeah. As, as I said, I mean, the the dream was always there, and I think at some point you just have to do it. Mm -hmm. I mean, regardless, you cannot wait eternally. Just at some point, you have to do it. Otherwise, you never do it. And, and the, the kids were just at the perfect age, so before okay. school. And uh, when not then, so when, when would you do that otherwise? Yeah. 
So you would have also have gone to that trip even if you hadn't sold your startup. Yes. And then you sailed from Europe to New Zealand in four years. In, in what way has this long and also intense trip uh, you know, changed or influenced you? Ah, so maybe one answer. I stopped worrying on that trip. About what? About anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was like, on, on the Atlantic Ocean, I was getting crazy with my own thoughts because I thought about, ah, oh, what if the mast breaks? And what if the rudder just goes away? What if we hit the container and we just go down like we sink and uh, with the kids and what it happens I mean the mask breaks all right we can live with that but if it falls on on, on my wife or my kids and everything and and then the, the kids just didn't care about this you know they were just fine and um, played Lego and then they had different problems because they couldn't find the, the black piece Lego piece mm -hmm. and ask me to help them find and, uh, and at the end I was suddenly I thought okay I'm I'm really uh, spending a miserable time worrying all the time. Mm -hmm. So wh why do I not stop it? So so I think I just stopped then worrying and uh, don't worry <laughs> anymore. Don't worry too much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's a remarkable thing that that changes because it puts a completely different perspective on on your life. I I can imagine. Yeah. Is that something that you still have today that you sort of took away from that trip, or once you're back, you know, in a in a regular environment in Switzerland, uh, does that change back to the to the old worrying part again? I'm scared like hell now. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, honestly, I mean, it, it, it stays. Uh, okay. Yeah, I think uh, there's a good saying, cross the bridge when we get there. Mm -hmm. That's that's how I see it. What were other influences that you took away from that trip? Live in the moment, but that's probably a bit the same. Mm -hmm. um, we're all the same everywhere. I mean, we're all people. There's no much difference. What else? <laughs> I don't know. Have fun. <laughs> I mean, I think these are pretty good takeaways. In, in what way has this also, you know, changed your perspective on what makes a happy or fulfilled life? I was thinking a lot about this. I think one one of the of the major ingredients of a happy life is gratefulness. So most most people somehow feel un, unhappy because they think oh my god uh, my my friend has more salary than i have and oh they have a bigger car and uh, oh what if and they make their life really really sad like this instead of just saying wow i'm so happy uh, that that actually we have all this when we cross the pacific um before we spent uh, some, some time in the Caribbean and in, in Costa Rica, uh, we never had really good cheese. <laughs> and, I mean, uh, if you come from Switzerland, obviously. Yes, <laughs> or other stuff. I mean, then, then, then we, on the Pacific, my wife left, maybe intentionally, a cookbook on the navigation table. So during a shift change, she probably just was watching what to, what to cook next. And uh, then I, I woke up and saw that book lying on the navigation table and started uh, seeing all these great things, actually. And how I, I actually miss them and how it would be cool to have that, that piece of meat and with this cheese and with the tomatoes. <laughs> and I mean, that's uh, so great. And here you can just go to the co-op and buy everything you want. That's right. 
there it's just not possible. And I mean, there's nothing in, in, the, in the Pacific is just nothing. Absolutely. <laughs> and there's coconuts, <laughs> there's avocados, <laughs> which is also good, but then... Uh, or pumpkins on the streets, right? Pumpkins on the streets, <laughs> exactly. But yeah, then, then you, 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 you're grateful of what, what we have here. And sometimes mm -hmm. I'm just here smiling and oh, I can just buy a coffee here and, and, and see that here. And then everything is so, so clean and, and trains is second class in the train is actually first class. How good is that? I mean, it's in, Absolutely. It's incredible. And everything works. Oh, yeah. I think, uh, you know, this, this gratefulness, I think that's something that we can all learn uh, mm -hmm. to practice a bit more, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what you men mentioned is like, if, if people start comparing themselves to others, mm -hmm. um, they, it's also probably a never ending story because there's always someone who has more or who is better than you. Yeah. So if you do that, that also probably never stops because there's al always someone next to go after, right? Yeah, exactly. But that, that's connected with take yourself not so seriously. Mm -hmm. Because if you take yourself so serious, then you think, oh, I'm, oh wait a minute, I'm worth more than him. So yeah. why do I have not? what he has exactly. right and basically just live your life and mm -hmm. and do what you want and absolutely what, don't look at the others they might be in, in the same situation maybe they they envy you for something else they think oh my neighbor is actually much more fit or or looks better as a better looking wife and uh, you know why don't i have that sure. <laughs> so if you don't take yourself that serious that will not happen I can imagine during this long trip of four years, there must have also been not so easy days. What were the, the toughest, toughest things that, that happened during that trip? What was tough? I mean, it was a lot of work, actually. One would not think. And if I tell people yeah, about sailing, then they might imagine you're there with a cocktail on the beach the whole day <laughs> doing nothing. But it's, it's, it's more comparable to a life as a farmer. So you wake up early, baking bread and uh, doing everything on your own mm -hmm. and uh, repairing the boat, schooling the, the kids, uh, sure. so all this. You also mentioned that you were sort of, you know, you had shifts where you were captains that you switched between you and your wife. Mm -hmm. So you probably also didn't spend that much time together after all when you had to, you know, to sleep and Mm -hmm. the, the significant other had to take over and, and sort of lead the boat, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's temporary phase. Yeah. When on, well, while sailing, that's longest was about 30 days, 27, okay. I think. Yeah. But then it's, it's over. Then you're on anchor or in the harbor or somewhere. Sure. Then you're together again. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Is there some, are there some parallels that you see between, you know, going on a long sail trip with all its ups and downs and the life of an entrepreneur having your own company and running it. Do you see any things like that you could compare or that you could transfer? Ah, you saw the article on entrepreneur.com? Okay. Uh, all right. Yeah, I think it's pretty much related because you also go, you, you have to have the direction. You have to have some kind of focus where you want to go. Mm -hmm. You have to... Uh, assess the risks. So, what's what's the weather going to be like? What are the the currents? Uh, what's what can be dangerous? Is there any underwater volcano, for example? So you have to be make sure to actually avoid it, and up going in there. Um, then it's it's a hard ride too. So it's pretty tough. It's probably the most uncomfortable way to go from A to B, sailing. 
So never forget this. I mean, uh, uh, imagine with, with five meters, six meter waves coming, uh, you have to cook or wash dishes and doing just regular stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's just like 10 times slower than in regular life. And uh, it's really no fun. But um, then other things are, are pretty cool. So, so, so <laughs> it's a bit, it's also the ups and downs you have in startup life where. It's much more volatile than your regular, maybe also a bit more boring life in rainy Switzerland, for example. Yeah, Switzerland never rains. That's what I say always. My wife doesn't like it. Okay. <laughs> I think it never rains here. Except now. <laughs> Not really. Is it raining? I mean, maybe snow, snowing, raining. <laughs> yeah, yeah. While you were traveling uh, on, on your boat, you were still creating apps and you were also still chairman of Shortcut Media, your second company. How did you successfully manage that from abroad? Because you had a satellite phone, but you had no like internet connection, how we have it nowadays uh, when we travel. Yeah. How, did you make the, you know, how did you make sure that the company was running well and how did you take care of the company from abroad? Yeah, so there are two things I want to say. So the first of all is communication with the team, which was um, actually in the beginning quite difficult, but then we got used to it. Mm -hmm. so, so I made myself more dispensable. And um, so, so it, it's, it's basically a question about creating processes and responsibilities within the team. That, that's, that's the majority or, or the, the, the most important thing. Once it happens that, that we had a kind of a bug and I just left, we just left uh, Bora Bora for, for five days on sea mm -hmm. and uh, to go to Palmerston on Cook Island. And then when I had the first chance to go to the internet, I saw like, my inbox with 5,000 emails, <laughs> something like this. It's just nothing was working at all. I, just, I, I could have just avoided it by testing before, the, right. before leaving, but I was there, oh, it's working. So then we added some, an, an, another, another layer of security and another layer of uh, a new process to it. So we learned from that and we adapted and uh, so so that this doesn't happen anymore. So uh, the second thing is developing. <laughs> and that relates to the other thing I said before, it's about the focus. Mm -hmm. So on a boat, when you're developing, there's no internet. It means yeah. if you run into a bug, there's no way to Google it. Right. But you, you are forced to understand what's actually wrong. You are forced to actually read the error message, which stands there. <laughs> You're forced to go into the header files and look and, and into the code to see what can be wrong. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually saw that it, was, it took about the same time, if not shorter, to solve those, the problems that way than going to Stack Overflow and just Google it. Mm -hmm. That would be my follow-up question. Were you more productive while coding on your own without uh, on your own on the boat without any internet connection and interruption yeah i guess so yeah, yeah. so that really helped without you. interruption so i woke up very early yeah. before the kids okay. <laughs> then sure so i could work yeah. that makes sense without interruption yeah then after four years on the sea uh, you arrived in new zealand and at a certain point you had to decide whether to stay there and probably stay there a bit for the longer time for long term or going back to switzerland how did you make up that decision? 
Yeah, that was a difficult one. So we were back and forth uh, between the two. So New Zealand is actually like Switzerland, but with 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 the sea. <laughs> and often I hear people here saying that uh, actually uh, Switzerland would be perfect if there were a sea. So you can imagine in what <laughs> context we were. <laughs> you go to New Zealand, but New Zealand. I mean, nothing is 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 like perfect. Uh, it has to be right for one. Uh, one uh, for yourself. Mm -hmm. New Zealand is pretty cool, but if you, you're a tech entrepreneur and tech guy, it's not so cool because there's not so many opportunities. Of course, I, I could do something on my own, right? But sure. then, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's actually pretty difficult. Then also family and friends, we, we miss them. After four years, uh, we didn't see them in between. We never went to, to back to Switzerland. We went to Silicon Valley where we, we saw a lot of, a lot of our friends actually were there. I was, I lived closer to Till <laughs> than before in Switzerland, in Zurich, which was pretty cool. So we, we had, we, we, we did some cool stuff together. But yeah, then at a certain point, you decided to, to go back to Switzerland. Yeah. And with that moving back, uh, there was also a professional change uh, for you. You started working at Magic Leap afterwards in August 2018. Mm. That sort of came also with a big change because before you had your own company, you were a founder, and now you moved back to Switzerland and you are now an employee and not a founder anymore. Mm. What made you join Magic Leap? What, was, uh, what attracted you basically? Um, so first of all, I'm a big fan of, of Magic Leap since, since I knew about them. I think, uh, and, and AR, of course. I mean, it started from AR as well. My, it's, it's, it's one of my passions. Um, then, uh, I, I contacted Alex to, to know a bit more about how he's feeling now and so on. Actually, nothing, I didn't think of anything else, just wanted to know how he's going. And then Maybe some, somehow <laughs> it, it went together then. And, I, and then, yeah, so, so I, now I joined uh, Magic Leap. And it, to your question from CEO to employee, it's, it's more like a relief. In, in it, what fe way? it feels like a relief. Um, so that was one of the interview questions. How do you feel then uh, from CEO to, to employee that uh, suddenly we have a boss? Yeah. But actually it's the other way around. As CEO, you have bosses. But you're, you're not on top as a CEO, you're all on the bottom. You have and to serve your employees basically. To you make have sure. to serve not only your employees, you have to serve your customers. Right. You have to serve your, your shareholders and the board. <laughs> and so you're really right on the bottom. And uh, yeah, of course, you're free to choose when you work your 18 hours a day, but uh, you're free to choose, right? So as an employee, you have one boss and uh, well, still maybe a lot of work, but uh, not, not as much as an entrepreneur. And you also recently piloted a, a virtual physiotherapist with a health insurance company in Switzerland. What, what else can we, can we expect in, in that regard? Because Magic Leap is a US-based company. Alex that you mentioned, uh, who co-founded Dakuda, sold Dakuda to Magic Leap mm -hmm. and is now working there. So uh, what have you guys planned for the future? Uh, of course, what you are allowed to say. Yeah, so there's like a lot of very exciting things coming that I can say. Uh, it's pretty cool. Just keep your eyes open. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. Before we uh, sort of wrap up the episode, uh, we have our regular questions that we ask our interviewees. I would like to start with the first one. Are there any tools or gadgets that you use on a regular basis that you can recommend to others? 
For in what context? For your personal life uh, that makes your life easier or more productive, basically. Um, so, so personal life or professional life with productive? We, we can take both. Depends on your uh, favorite. I think actually I, I, was, I was a lot into tools at a certain mm -hmm. time. But now I, I think the best thing for productivity is not using too many tools. Uh, so <laughs> each tool takes, there's this tomato, which I think it's, it's not really needed, right? This, this, I've never tried it, but a lot of people like that, that you're, you have to be focused during a certain time and then there's an alarm and so on. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't recommend that. Uh, just be focused. Uh, as as long as you can go with the flow yeah yeah maybe uh one thing i i'm working it's probably the app i use more than anything else is things mm -hmm. i started with it when i started the getting things done back in 2000 i know what, what it was 2009 or something and i'm sticking to it since ever since so it's my to-do list a to-do list is some i i see i i don't know i cannot imagine living without the to-do list and uh, yeah, of course, there are other, depending the context, mm -hmm. but you said in your ter personal life, but personal life, don't use tools, uh, try to focus on things, deep work. Um, yeah. Makes sense. I think that's best. <laughs> and uh, my last question for today, um, do you have any additional resources like podcasts, books or blogs that you consume on a regular basis and can recommend to others? Well, I read a lot. I really, really read a lot. Uh, probably a week, uh, a book a week or something. What are you currently reading? Currently, I'm reading. Uh, uh, I forgot the type title. Something about. Uh, I, I I just read before uh, Rolf Dobelli's new book, and then I was looking up for Charlie Munger, and there was a book called I forgot how to something. Um, how to make millions by better decisions. It's actually, I don't, I'm not reading it to make millions, but to make better decisions. Um, so that's, that's pretty interesting at the moment. Cool. Yeah. So what would I recommend? So probably the one book I would recommend if I had, there was one book to recommend <laughs> for the whole life is how to make friends and influence people. Why especially that book? Because that's again about the thing I said, don't take yourself too important. Uh, it's, it's not about you, it's about the others. It's, it's really a good book. The title is very, very, very bad, yeah. very badly chosen. I agree. Oh, you agree? <laughs> okay. But I the think, book is really great. I think that's a wonderful ending point. Herbert, thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat with us today and lots of success with all your future projects that you tackle. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Swisspreneur. If you have any feedback or points we can improve, please let us know and send us an email to info at Swisspreneur.com. If you liked what you just heard, please make sure to follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter at Swisspreneur.org. See you next time. <laughs>